to Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Blacklight Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Amber works at Restorative Action Alliance, and she's in Connecticut doing wonderful things to help just make um, a better community for us all and doing a lot to switch the landscape of the criminal justice. So Amber, if you want to go ahead and tell us a little about yourself and introduce yourself to the audience, that'd be good. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me on today. Um, I appreciate all the work that you're doing, and I know that we're sort of co-strugglers um, against these systems, so thank you so much for that. Um, as you mentioned, uh, my name is Amber, and um, I am the Executive Director of Restorative Action Alliance, um, and I come to this work as um, a crime survivor, also as someone who has been deeply impacted um, in my family by the criminal legal system. And so Restorative Action Alliance um, really approaches this through the lens of sexual violence and um, ending sexual violence. So we know that ending systems of perpetual punishment and looking at sexual violence through a criminal justice lens rather than a um, public health lens is um, detrimental to breaking cycles. So we, um, we approach it in that way and we don't see you know, ending carceral approaches as outside of the fight against sexual violence. We see it as a very, very important part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is because I mean, in actionality, everybody suffers when it comes to sexual violence. Like, even you have women that are trafficked, and because they kill their trafficker, they are charged with murder. Um, and so, and then you have the ones who might have slipped up, you know, and done something, but then still have to carry that for the rest of their lives. And so, I think it's important um, that we start looking at it from a mental health issue um, because a lot of people are sexually abused as children, and we know that chemically in your brain that can make you a lot more sexual active than somebody who hasn't experienced that. And so looking at it from a mental health issue and starting treatment and, and I think that's really important than saying, hey, you have to register as a sex offender. And, um, you know, some people's crimes aren't even that, that serious and they still have to carry that name or they were falsely accused. They still have to carry that name. We know a lot of people have been falsely accused of sexual crimes, we have a lot of people incarcerated now who are innocent, who were accused of a crime that they didn't do, or it was consensual and they got mad. And so, you know, you know how that goes. So yeah, that's important. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you bring up some important points because when we think about like um, the system and all of this disparities within the system, right? This um, carries over to all parts of the system. So whether it's sentencing, it's the way people are prosecuted, whether it's registries, the entire prison industrial complex is based on sort of punishment and this idea that if we are going to punish and perpetually punish and harshly punish people who perpetrate harm because they're the other, then um, that somehow is healing for those who have been harmed and it really um, doesn't make a lot of sense because at the end of the day, people who are caught up in the system, um, they are our family members, they are our community members, they are not like these other people. Um, and when we try to sort of approach it in that way, it really, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense and it just perpetuates cycles of harm. So state harm is just as egregious, if not more, because of the full power of the state, right, mm -hmm. um, than interpersonal harm. So when you look at it from a systemic standpoint, punishing individual perpetrators is never going to break cycles. It's not to say that people shouldn't be held accountable, right, because right. accountability and the way that we punish 
and cage and destroy people are two very different things because then they're in their victimization, right? So I can't be accountable for something if the only thing I can think about is my own victimization by the state. Um, so that's why we really um, were big proponents of restorative mm. justice practices because it asks a, diff a completely different set of questions than the criminal legal system does. It really focuses on who was harmed and what obligations have been created rather than who who did it, what you know statute was broken, mm -hmm. how can we punish them? Restorative justice asks like who was harmed and what obligation obligations stem from that. So whether it's the individual perpetrator, what obligation do they have to help repair? Mm -hmm. And what obligation does the community have in like the the um the conditions that we've created and we've been complicit in um, to allow those different things to uh, be not inevitable, but more likely. Well, and I think that if we if we look at the whole big picture when it comes to how America has criminalized and warehouse people is it comes down to dollars. I don't think people need to understand that if the prison beds are empty, and I read this in, in, a, um, in a book um, that's actually called um, Ineffective Assistance and Counsel. And so he broke it down stating that they have to fill the beds. Each time they let somebody go, they have to hurry up and fill the beds because they are actually profiting and turning those that money into private funds, which then goes into family and friends of the corporations that are under incarceration. And so incarceration is is money it's just like how it was in slavery days where they had slaves that they had the slaves go out there and do everything and they made money that's how a co the economy first got going was the cotton fields so it's the same thing when it comes to incarceration it's just modern day instead of just being a bunch of black people it's everybody they don't care now they they just to the point where they don't care for children what color you are you know, if you are a marginalized, poor population, because of course, if you got money, as you see, you can get off any and everything. Right. <laughs> but if you don't, then you have to suffer. And so now they've made it to the point where they don't even care about humanity. It's just about the dollar and how they can get free profit and money and, and millions of dollars off of human beings. That's just what it is. And so that's why they don't do restorative justice. That's why restorative justice has never been put in the community because I've heard a lot of people say, okay, well, you kill my loved one and I want you to, to be sentenced to death. But then when they go and they go to the sentencing hearing, they're like, oh, well, I don't feel any better. Well, of course you're not because you haven't healed. And once you heal, once you get through the healing process, then you're able to understand or be more compassionate to the person that harmed you. And so restore, that's what restorative justice does. It takes the person that was harmed and the person that did the harm and put them together and figure it out as to why you harmed them and how it made the person that you harmed feel. And then you're able to work together to heal each other. And then you can get past the, oh, well, I want you to die or I will never forgive you. And so if that was in every community, prosecutors wouldn't have, and they definitely wouldn't have a job. Um, none of the courthouses would not have a job. I mean, because if you think it goes from court to prison, like all of that is profited off the backs of marginalized people. So that's why you don't see restorative justice as, as far as in different communities as we know that it works. That's why you don't see holistic public defenders offices because that stops the dollar. That stops people from going in the cycle, which they want us to be in the cycle so they can keep making money off of us. Well, I think you bring up important points. Um, and one of the things that I like heard you say that um, I would love to like expound upon just a little bit is um, a lot of people have this misconception that there's the, this huge apparatus of like private prisons. And at one point, you know, there was like, you know, private prisons and there still are, but the large majority of, you know, uh, entities that cage people are public entities, but that doesn't mean that they're not making money, right? So just because it's not like a private entity where it's going in the pocket, we've created this huge system of money making 
whereby all these services, right? When you talk about phone calls and commissary and all of these services that um, people bring in and provide at exorbitant costs, as you said, off the backs of not necessarily the incarcerated people themselves, but their families, mm -hmm. because they are the ones that are fit footing those bills. Mm -hmm. Not to mention when we talk about like people working in prisons, right? So there are huge consequences to people who um, don't want to work or don't want to work in a certain type of way in a certain job um, that is used as like a punishment, like if you're not doing this labor. But what are you getting paid? You're getting paid 25 cents. You're getting paid a dollar. Like, and there's no protection, right? You know, no worker states, protection. Some states, they don't even pay you. You just got to work right. for free. Right. And so, you know, we have, you know, folks that try to, you know, again, not bad people, but people that just don't understand because they're not like, they haven't taken the time. They're not living the life. They don't fully understand it. Well, oh, this is like job training. This is preparing people for the outside. But again, it's a very coercive environment. There is no way to opt out. They're not being protected. Like, you know, if you go to a job on the outside, right, and your working conditions are abysmal, there are ways to change that, right? And there are protections for you. You don't see that behind the walls and you don't see, you know, um, breaks that are mandatory. You don't see all of those things that, you know, we know um, are what able enable people to have that learning, to have that um, sense of accomplishment from working a job. And the consequences of not doing that in the way that it's prescribed to you are very, very dire when you're behind the walls. So I, I, I agree. Um, when we look at those systems that are profiting off the prison industrial co complex, it doesn't only include those providing services inside prison. It extends to community control. So I know in my in our own, in my own life that uh, coercive mandatory treatment that has nothing to do with the charge. You're paying for that out of pocket. Um, people are paying for monitoring, so electronic monitoring. So they're being paid to. Uh, they're paying out of their own pocket to be surveilled and controlled for excessive amounts of time. So, I mean, it really extends the full breadth of um, not just behind the walls, not just prior to being incarcerated, but also sort of on the back end when you're uh, trying to come back to the community. And then just by them having it where, you know, you really can't get anywhere to live, you can't get food stamps if you have certain, um, you know, charges, you know, if you have sex, certain sexual charges, you can't. So they just continue to keep putting barriers on you even after you're incarcerated. And then even on your family, because as you mentioned, when somebody is on parole or probation, they tell you that, okay, you can't have this person come stay. You have to ask permission to do this and do that. So you're still under surveillance from, you know, from the time you leave and then your family becomes under surveillance because you have to live there. And so you, they have to go by whatever, you know, that the probation or parole officer tells you to do. And so they're still controlling the community and the lives all in the same note. And, um, you know, it's just, we have to start building community-based programs that will help the community because as we see, the governmental programs are always going to keep you somehow surveillance. I mean, because you can't go to the doctor and take your child to the doctor without they see a bruise or something that they don't feel is right, they're going to report you. And then your kids are taken away and they're into CPS. And instead of them giving to kinship, they want to give them to a whole nother family who they don't even really do sound background checks and make sure that that family is okay. And then you have children that end up dead. And so, or you have children that end up in the cycle of incarceration because I don't think people understand CPS. They said 90% of children will be in some type of incarceration when they have to deal with CPS or foster homes or group homes. So it's just a cycle. You, you school, CPS, any governmental program that you're on, 
all of that keeps you up under the government control. And so we as a community have to build our own communities um, and, and just provide community-based programs that we know work because, of course, the government doesn't know what works for the community because they're not out here. All they think about is, you know, what they have going on. Well, and I, I think that it is important to make those connections that you're just speaking of between different systems. And when we look at the different systems, the disparities that we see based on race, based on disability, based on all sorts of different factors, socioeconomics, you know, is a major one. Um, people being criminalized or penalized in all sorts of systems, CPS is a huge factor there for simply being poor. Like people are making, or a lot of times people have no choice. They have bad choice versus bad choice. And like an example of that is, do my kids go hungry or do I go to work and I don't have care and they're home alone, mm -hmm. right? Like right. that's all bad choices. Right. But, you know, rather than being like, hey, how do we help this person? How do we come alongside them and provide them care and support? It's like, well, you, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't know why you didn't do it because I did. And you know, you didn't have, you know, barriers or anything like that. You know, there, racism doesn't exist. This doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It's it's ludicrous. And so I think one of the things that I do find encouraging, though, is that the conversations like these, right, because maybe even five years ago, the conversations were very different, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it feels like a small trickle. Right. Um, but the more conversations we have, the more people we connect with sort of where they're at, um, because there are so many people and I am ashamed to say. Myself included that I just thought everything was fair. Right. Like mm -hmm. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm really ashamed of that. Um, but once you see, you cannot unsee. Unsee it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the problem. A lot of people, like, unless you are directly impacted, you don't understand. I mean, now I feel like a little people are waking up a little bit more than maybe six or seven years ago, because if you wasn't directly impacted, then you, you just didn't know about that life. Because I know I didn't. Like, I just assumed that, you know, everything was fair. People went to court, went to court for whatever they did. But then actually, like, seeing going to court and then seeing people who are innocent and you know they're in there for just frivolous stuff like broken window issues like people who are urinating in public and you know because they're homeless like that doesn't make sense you know what I mean and people in there because they got a broken tail light and then they had some marijuana so then it, you know it just it leads and so and then people started started to lose their lives when police started to pull them over and so that just got more and more prevalent to me. And so I am thankful that now that we're having more of these conversations, a lot of people are starting to understand that that system is not what we thought it was. It's not fair. It's not just. It doesn't treat people fairly. It just sucks in any and everybody at this moment that they can just to continue to warehouse people to make a profit off of families and the people that are incarcerated. So we just got to keep doing work and keep having these conversations and um, just keep having more organizations that are about the movement move us towards that because we're going to have to move us we already know yeah like it's got to be us right? <laughs> it's not going to move us so it has to be us moving the whole united states into that direction of everybody being able to feel comfortable and not oh well, i make more money than you i'm better than you or i've never been in trouble so i don't know what that's like and you should have done better and done better choices and so just being able to have a community where everybody feels like they're, they're from that community and that everybody is equally, you know, having somewhere to live that's safe and having affordable jobs that pay and just having community resources. Because, you know, I mean, when I was young, you know, we had villages. So my grandma would be one who would watch all the children. She'd be like, sure. Hey, if the single moms couldn't didn't have couldn't pay for daycare because daycare was expensive then it's really expensive now it's probably a car payment and a half now 
Um, but she would watch the kids and, you know, make sure they were fed. And by the time the moms got off, they, the, the kids were asleep. So she was able to help a lot of people in her community. And so having that is important. And we don't have that because they came and they tore down our communities. Because as we, as we look at the incarceration numbers, now women are starting to be more incarcerated than men. So you just have babies that are just out here on their own. And now they're becoming a target. And so they're being put in prison until... I mean, you know, they're giving them life and just heinous years that they don't deserve. And so we have to, we have to as a community, if we want to keep our communities better and keep them where they were, then we have to start as we are doing moving forward because they're not. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, as, as we just talked about, when we think about um, lived experience and the people who are most impacted, right? Mm -hmm. um, really lifting up those experiences, but also not thinking that um, it is the response, the, it is only the responsibility of those who are impacted to fix it. Because we all created this, we're all complicit in this, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, those voices should be centered 100%, but standing by quietly being like, well, that's not my problem is almost, if not more harmful than um, just, you know, uh, the folks who are really out there trying and telling their stories. So we really have to, um, everybody has to play a role. Every person has to play a role in this work and um, I think that, you know, in our own lives, we've experienced, um, you know, we've experienced a certain amount of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just have to call it out because I walked into um, when my husband was incarcerated and knowing nothing to visit him, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody looked like him. And just to be clear, you know, for people who are listening and don't see, I'm a white woman, okay? And so I was like, well, this can't be right, right? Like, and, and then the more I learned about it and the more that I spoke to people and the more that I interacted with people, some of the most courageous people that I interacted with that, you know, helped me through this. Uh, I remember a woman standing, waiting in a visitor's line and my daughter who was about 12 at the time she didn't even know what to do. This was the first time she was visiting her father. She was like so overwhelmed with grief. And this woman just patted her on the shoulder and she said, honey, it's going to be okay. And like, that is what like helped us get through is that people who were in solidarity with us and um, nobody had to do that. Right. And it, it's just, um, the community of people who um, are in this fight and who are, you know, trying to make the change um, are like finding, finding this group and this solidarity is like better. I mean, I'm not saying I'm glad this happened to us. Like, that's not it. But I'm saying like the people that I have come across are, should be the leaders in our communities because they know what it is to have that empathy, right? So um, that that has really taught me a lot and I'm really ashamed to say that I knew nothing. I knew nothing. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't, I didn't either. Like I didn't know, you know, anything about a visit or how you, you know, I didn't know anything because I was, I even asked my husband, did they have conjugal visits? He was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's right you're like that's like long time ago but actually they some places still do is my understanding from yes my, um, my chats with folks new york i think it's only six states new york california and it's, it's a state up there near you it might be maine or rhode island one of them do it but yeah it's not, it's not many <laughs> that still do it and and i think that that's another thing is the control of them keeping them keeping families separated like it's so yeah, controlled when you go into a prison 
and it's so intimidating. Like, who wants to bring a child into prison when it's not prison friendly? You know what I mean? It's not child friendly. Your child to sit there for two hours or however long visitation is in a chair with nothing to write, nothing to color, nothing to drink, nothing to eat, especially where we are. They don't have any vending machines. So a child is just sitting there for an hour or two. You know, yeah, of course you can interact with a parent, but when they're young like that, their mind is running a thousand miles an hour. They're not going to sit right, for hours. Right. Like, where's know? my crayons? Where's my snack? Yes. <laughs> like, it should be more, and they should have activities for you to do while you're there with them. Like, it should be more family friendly instead of keeping you away from your family. And I know that California is starting to work on that where they do do a lot of family oriented visits and they have activities and little parties and things like that but that needs to be everywhere because you keeping children away from parents and and you know wives and husbands away like it's it's no need for that you know I mean it doesn't make it better at all on them or the community so um I think it's even even the just the idea if you even want to just make like a selfish argument like take the human first of all let's say okay let's treat people like humans okay well that's number one so maybe that argument doesn't resonate with you and if it doesn't you're not my people but i'm saying okay so that doesn't resonate with you we should treat people like humans it's a safety argument right because at the end of the day what keeps people connected to community their family what happens when somebody is released back into the community and they have all ties severed, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, it's about safety. It's about, you know, for those people who only care about money, it's about money because who's going to support and help those people get back on their feet? It's mothers, aunties, grandmas, all of the, you know, those are the people who are bearing the brunt of mass incarceration. Yeah. Yeah. And especially the grandparents now that I'm seeing since you are, since we are incarcerating more women and then men at the same time, the grandparents are the bear the burdens of the children that are left with parents that are incarcerated. And that's not fair either at all. Yeah, no, I think that again, it is the entire community that ends up affected by some of these policies Mm -hmm. and then just sort of to go back to probation parole um, conviction registries those policies that started out so like probation started out as like oh we're going to help these people get back on their feet and it should have been more of a social work sort of model Mm -hmm. but it just became another apparatus um, that controlled people for much too long a time. The consequences for tripping up are, you know, substantial and feeding people back into prisons. And when you talk about family separation and uh, anybody who is not aware of what happens to somebody when they're required to register, um, you you would not believe. People can't live with their families even though they have a home. There are people that spend the day with their family and because of their residency restrictions or whatnot, they may spend a day with their family and then they're sleeping in their car at night because they can't reside there. Um, And you've got like the idea of reconciliation after harm has occurred, which again, think about like the detrimental effects to a child. Abuse is detrimental. But it can be addressed. The removing a parent, ripping a parent from someone's life forever, completely, also detrimental. So we're we're trading one harm for another. Mm-hmm. And and it, you know, it's difficult because of our cultural frames around this type of offense to um, really critically think about it because for many years since the 90s, we've been in this horrible panic around this. So. And and I mean, to be honest, like your politicians are doing the same thing as we see our politician was just called out for that. So, I mean, they're no different than us. It's just that they have the power and the money (laughs) to hide what they're doing. I mean, you know, technically he should be a sex offender for the things that he done. You know what I mean? So, right. 
Um, and I know you do a lot of work around that. Can, can you just kind of talk to the audience? Because you you also run a podcast as well. And I know that y'all yeah. do have um, a lot of people that come on who are part of the registry. And just explain like some of the stories that you've heard um, to our audience about just how complicated it is and, and, and you know, how to overcome it and to change the narrative around sure. it. Sure. So I think there are a couple of different things that it's important for people to really understand when it comes to someone who is accused, convicted um, of a sexual offense. So number one, it's important to understand that there's a wide range of offenses and growing, right, that fall under that category. So when we think about like other offenses, you know, you're talking about like misdemeanors all the way to felonies we um we sort of try to categorize them or the system tries to categorize them by some you know semblance of what type of culpability or or the heinousness of the crime which i don't believe in any of that because it's all mislabeled anyway right but my point is that there's a wide range of types of behaviors that are considered a sex offense quote unquote and so it can be everything from you know, uh, a 15-year-old dating a 19-year-old, one is considered an adult, one is considered a child. Um, it can be um, inadvertently clicking on legal pornography and one image being mixed up in that. It can be peeing in public. It can be, you know, a more serious assault. Um, there are individuals who find themselves on the registry who commit a non-sexual offense that um, somehow uh, there's a case made that it was for a sexual purpose, like they had a robbery, right? And a child was involved and they are required because of the way the laws are written, even though it had nothing to do with sex to be on a registry. And so it's really important to sort of understand the range of people um, is not that, you know, what we think of in the cultural norm, that it's, you know, a stranger in the bushes that jump out and is there to um, assault women and children. Right. So that's an important thing to understand. Um, the other thing um, that I just alluded to is to understand that 95% of sexual assault is done by somebody who the victim knows um, either well or is associated with. So when we think about registries, they are designed on the premise that um, strangers are committing this harm, right? And so um, most people are first time offenders. So the registry does nothing to prevent that. Um, the other thing that is really important for people to understand about registries is that um, it's not just a mere shaming list where your name and your address and your place of employment in your car is listed on a public registry, which maybe you could overcome that, even though it's very, you know, shaming and all of that. It is a category that the courts consider it to be not punishment, part of your sentence. They consider it to be a regulatory measure. And so what that means for people who live on the registry is that it can change at any time because it can be applied retroactively because it's regulation. And in this country, we don't retroactively apply punishments because mm -hmm. that's unconstitutional. But when it's a regulation, you can do it. So for instance, I have interacted with many, many people who at one point were living with their family and then the legislature decided that because of whatever offense category their um, crime fell into, those people can no longer live with somebody 18 and younger, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, um, I know a person who was a single father raising an autistic child and was required to register for something, you know, 20 years ago and registering for life, they changed the laws. And it was like, okay, I can now no longer live with my son. Where's he gonna go? What's he gonna do? And so I think that's one of the things that when we talk about criminal legal reform, a lot of times people will be pushing for relief. So record sealing, 
or um, you know, additional good time credits in prison and things like that. And it will be, well, this is applicable for everybody except for people who committed a sex offense or a violent offense. Mm-hmm. And we're really hurting ourselves and our arguments when we're creating room for those carve outs. Because once we are making the conversation about who is deserving, who isn't deserving, then we're no longer controlling that narrative and doubling down on what we know to be true mm-hmm. is that there is no public safety risk. People with sexual offenses and violent offenses have lower recidivism rates, right? So when you're talking about like homicide, manslaughter, sexual offenses, things like that. And so why are we carving people out of relief? It's not a public safety argument that is valid. It's what they use. But once we're having that deserving, non-deserving, we're creating that space. And so it's one thing for legislators who know nothing to do that. But it's another thing for people in the criminal legal reform movement to start their campaigns with talking points that say, don't worry, everyone, these people aren't included. So you can support our campaign now. Right, right. Yeah. And so that that's, and I think that that's where a lot of why we can't move and why some organizations can't move forward is because okay well they support this part of criminal justice legal reform but they don't they don't support this part because of this charge you know what i'm saying right so we are still discounting one another when the whole thing is to change it all because you have to change it all because we know a lot of the things that are under the criminal justice legal system are just titles and so you are and they're behaviors that can be fixed, but you're putting a title as if they can't never, like it can never be fixed. You know what I mean? You're a felon or um, right. you have this sex offense or whatever it is that you have. They just try to make it seem like that it can't be re- rehabilitated because for one, we know they don't offer any rehabilitation at all in prison. And then by the time that you have rehabilitated yourself, which takes a lot for you to do on your own, you still are having difficulty when you come back out because you have to either register or you're on parole or you're on probation um so it still makes it and then you sometimes you like you said you can't of course if you got a felony any type of felony you can't live on any type of housing authority ground some landlords don't want you there um so you're just creating another i guess another cycle for them to come right back and so uh, you know, we as the community have to, and especially people in this movement, have to stop, I guess, picking what we want to reform and have to say we got to reform it all because you can't just pick this and this and that right. and leave this. You're not reforming anything because everybody is under a different type of incarceration or surveillance. So you have to reform. It has to be a, a everything. All charges have to be reformed and renamed and yeah, that's just how I feel about it. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think it's important to understand that there are going to be negotiations. Like, it's part of the process, and I'm not completely against incremental reform. I am uh, against uh, leaving people behind. So maybe you don't get the full reform that you wanted, but it's about maybe, you know, the policy change or whatever. It's not about leaving people behind. Because what happens when you do that is you make it exponent, you're enshrining their marginalization of the most disfavored into law. Because let's be honest, it doesn't matter how many, uh, you know, people or how much money you throw at um, a campaign that is only applicable to someone convicted of a sexual offense or murder, right? Like, no matter how much money you put into that, you're going to get very little support for that Mm -hmm. because it will only, the conversation will be around those. So it really needs to be all of us or none of us. And again, what people need to understand, particularly for those who are required to register, is this is not just an absence of relief when you're carving those folks out. It is actually upholding that state harm that 
because it's based on that public safety argument that allows the government to strip people of constitutional and human rights because the public safety argument says, well, we don't have to uphold the constitution for these people because public safety. So people need to like understand it's not just an absence of relief. It is committing harm. And I, and I think another thing we need to think about is you say public safety and then you when you when they say public safety, they correlate it with people that have have charges of being incarcerated. But then we're not also looking at the pub, public safety side of police officers that harass and kill mm -hmm. people constantly. And they're supposed to be keeping the public safe, but they don't. And so it's crazy how they don't add that into public safety and they allow them to get away with state sanctioned murders of just everyday Americans because of whatever reason they feel like they want to murder that person. And that's still part of public safety. You know what that's I mean? Right. Attached to the people that, you know, have been in the system, they are a part of the public safety as well. And so you can't even trust them to go on a mental health call without you you dying. You know what I mean? Right. Just like how it was in, in North Carolina where this guy just died. He had was known schizophrenic in a small town. They knew he had that issue. And um, the, I guess, contracted care that they had out there refused to give him his shots. So therefore he had a mental health crisis and we're still not sure why they failed to give him his shots. But police were called because he had, you know, a mental health crisis in front of the store. And they said that they basically left him in front of the store in, in an ambulance for seven hours and he died. And so, you know, I guess from all the tussling and things that he was, that he was, that was going on with the police. And so, we're not thinking about that aspect of public safety. How are we keeping our community safe from these aggressive, sometimes racist police officers who feel like they're above the law and don't have to, and you know, and, and they feel like that because they have immunity. So they get away with killing people. I mean, we, we get to the point now where we start charging them, but I mean, they still don't serve near amount of time as a regular citizen who goes out and commits a felony or kills somebody. So we, if we can reimagine that and, and put them both together, I think it would be better because, I mean, you, you can't, we can't keep allowing police officers to come and terrorize our communities. They're tearing the communities apart and they're terrorizing them all in the same note. And don't get me wrong, not all police officers are bad, but I mean, you have those that really are in this to get away with unlawful things where they don't have to stand in front of anybody for it. Well, I think you absolutely you are you are like so right um i think that one of the things that we have to reframe um as you said so eloquently is who deserves safety the answer to that is not you or you it is all of us right and what does safety mean Ooh. safety means that if I am experiencing harm and I call the police, they're not going to come arrest me because of what I look like, right? Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't be afraid. And those who are in public service who have the ability to have so much power over people's lives and the community in general have to be held to a higher standard, not a lower one, not like, oops, well, I have immunity because there's no court case right? Mm -hmm. That says specifically that I can't shoot somebody in the face. What? <laughs> like, what kind of world are we living in? So I'm supposed to know as a regular citizen that I can't shoot somebody in the face, but you're an officer of the law and you, unless a court like specifically said, an officer of the law cannot shoot somebody in the face at two o'clock on Tuesday, then qualified immunity. <laughs> what? Yeah, and I don't then, understand. And, and and then you know the domestic violence. I don't think a lot of people know, but I've I've heard a lot of cop wives say that their husbands used to abuse them, that they drink and they would abuse them, and because they were police officers, they couldn't really report it because they knew that they would be on the police officer side. So it's no different then your average Joe who's beating his girlfriend and you want to come in and be like, oh, you need to press charges. Why is, why is it the same way when they're beating on their wives? Right. 
But I think it's important to really rethink and reimagine what we see as the solution to safety. Like the police are not the answer to everything, right? And so just as much as, you know, you talk about why is there a problem with domestic violence amongst police? Because we have utilized this system, you know, holding individual police, policemen or police women or police people accountable may, you know, again, whatever you think accountability is, right, mm-hmm. might address a personal situation, but it's not going to address the system as a whole. Because I honestly think that there are people who want to be police officers and find themselves in law enforcement because they think that they are helping the community, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it doesn't mean that they're like bad people or whatever, but then they find themselves in a system that is, it's a, it's a death-making system, right? Yeah. And so then they find themselves in this horrible culture of, well, we're going to keep everybody quiet. We got the code, this and that. And um, I actually had a really um, interesting conversation with a former police officer on our podcast, which um, I'll be honest, I was feeling all kind of triggered and trauma just talking to a police officer, but I actually learned a lot. But why are people, why is domestic violence so prevalent? What do we ask police officers to do on the regular? The things that they see, the things that they're asked to do, the culture in which they operate, um, you know, all of that. It, if we look at the whole, the system as a whole, when you think about police officers and correctional officers and people who are like part of um, the the system in terms of like even those who are doing um, mental health care in prisons, the little bit that they have, mm-hmm. like the turnover in that area is like, people are like, wait a minute, this isn't mental health care. This is just like slapping some Motrin on it. Yes. I got to get out of here. Yes. <laughs> and, if, and if they express that they're not, that they don't like the way that they're being treated, they don't want to treat their patients the way that prison wants them to treat them, they get backlash. And so um, I'm glad that there there is um, an organization in New York that is full of social workers that actually work in the prison who are coming out with the bill to where you, they can't be punished and that right. you know it's it's fair that they're able to you know say I don't I don't want to I don't want to treat them like that I want to be able to do my job the way I know how to do it and not treat them as if they're in they're not human or you know and then I get backlash for it because it's really important that we change the culture like I don't I don't feel like it should be prison I think it should be changed I think it should be all mental yeah. health and catered to mental health, because don't get me wrong, there are some people who just can't live among society, but they should not be in a cultural prison like we have now. It needs to be something where they're always getting holistic mental health if you can't live among society, but always getting holistic mental health and always still keeping that family connection instead of taking them to a prison or taking them to the mental ward, which they don't even have a lot of those anymore now. They just, it's just a great prison and you get no mental health. So you're just there suffering all the way around. But I mean, it's just really important that we really, because we don't even have a hold on mental health. That's why people are out here having mental health crisis left and right. And the police are getting called because we, we don't, we're not handling mental health. They just want you to go to go to therapy and take these pills. But if you don't have insurance, you can't go to therapy. You can't get your, right. you can't get what you need to be balanced. And so um, that's, my husband has come up with a program and that's what we're trying to do. A holistic mental health to help people to understand that you can regulate your own mental health. Mental health is not something, I think they put a label as if you will never be cured, but you can balance yourself. Mental health problems is all all comes from your body being imbalanced and through trauma that you experience, whether it's, you know, family trauma, whether it's generational trauma. It's all the things that we've experienced in America that can traumatize you and have you in a traumatized state. And when your body is that off balance, it's not going to function like it's supposed to. So getting it back into a balanced state um, is extremely important. And that's why I did uh, not this show, but the show before last or two shows ago, I did one with a trauma generational coach. Yeah. People understand that, you know, generational trauma is a thing and that can affect mm-hmm. you. 
daily. And so that could cause mental health imbalances, which therefore, you know, it causes your brain to have an imbalance. And then that's why people are in mental health crisis. And so just taking a different approach to mental health, but, you know, to me, mental health is no, no different than a prison. I've experienced being in a mental hospital and to me, it, it was a prison. It felt like just like a prison it was no different. Um, so just changing the whole approach of how we approach things, because we've been so conformed mm-hmm. um, by America and, and how people think and, you know, how they think things are supposed to go that we're not really seeing the other side or the bigger picture. We just see what they painted for us. Well, I, I really, um, first of all, I'm really sorry that you experienced, you know, had a, a bad experience with the mental health system. I will tell you that that's not the first time that I heard that. And um, it also is something that, you know, my own loved one experienced. Um, I think one of the things that it comes down to, um, and I had an amazing conversation with Kathy Flaherty, who does a lot of good work around um, disability and mental health and all of that, is this idea of autonomy and being um, able to self-determine how you're going to work through things. And then the other thing that really comes to mind for me is, um, you know, the idea that normal human responses to extreme trauma and situations does not always have to be diagnosed as some incurable mental health issue. Like, how do you think somebody's going to react when you rip them from their community and throw them in a cage 23 hours a day? Like, what? Mm -hmm. Of course, they're going to react negatively and have anger and all of those things. So if we somehow think that like violence and committing violence against people and over punishing and all of that is going to create healthier, wholer people. We're just kidding ourselves as a society. I mean, honestly, because I mean, when you're already traumatized and then you go into any type of governmental system, whatever it is, that's 10 times more trauma. And so they're not teaching you how to work through the first bit of trauma that you've already experienced. And then you're just adding trauma on top of trauma. And like I said, that literally throws your whole chemical balance in your body off. And so then that's when you start having schizophrenia or bipolar of, or things of that nature, because they give, there's no room to just heal your trauma at all. Like a lot of people don't have, they don't even know where to begin to start mm-hmm. to heal. So that's why they turn to, which we know politicians brought the drugs into the community. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. so that's why they're turning to drugs to numb it instead, instead of saying, instead of us saying, hey, let's see how we can kill you. We want to put you in jail or try this drug treatment program that puts you on another medication that still keeps you strung out sometimes. Um, and we're not, we're not providing programs or resources that are sustainable. They're just, right. you know what I'm saying? Like here and there and we'll try this and, you know, then you're still, you still end up in the same cycle or in a prison cycle or in a mental ward or whatever it is that the government places you in that they want to keep keep a hold of the community. And that's the problem. Well, and I think there's also a certain level of blame that is placed on people for their situation. Again, I'm not talking about real accountability. Like if I, if I do something harmful, which listen, we've all done in our lives. I just want to point that out. Like, really. Some people were criminalized for things. Some people were not criminalized. And it's very arbitrary. But like, for instance, when you talk about generational trauma that's caused by socioeconomics or race or, or whatever it is, right? We're going to blame people for that without any acknowledgement of like, if we just, you know, I think uh, I just saw someone writing on Twitter, um, you know, oh, obviously, if we just ignore cancer, it will just go away. Go away. Right? <laughs> like. So not addressing all of these harms that and atrocities that have been committed, and then that's just going to like trickle through different generations of people mm-hmm. is idiocy, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I, 
as you mentioned, you know, we have the podcast and we're on our uh, fourth season now and we've talked to many, many people. And I have not heard one single person on our podcast and with all the people that I've worked with across the country that said, you know what? I was doing great. <laughs> I was doing great. I had all the care I needed and then I did this bad thing. Yeah. Not a one. So like what we try to like highlight is like, what are those touch points that could have happened in somebody's life? And, you know, don't get me wrong. People do have little rays of light that came into their life that, you know, like you said, weren't sustainable or whatever, but for that moment they experienced safety and then they were right back into the cycle. But what are we doing as far as like education for our kids in an equitable way? teaching real history, right, mm -hmm. in a safe space with equity for all children in a way that they learn the best, right? So mm -hmm. whether it's disability or race or, or um, you know, mental health or um, just spending the same amount of money on every student. I, I mean, again, these are really complicated issues, but because we have a system where politicians need a solution and they need a solution, in basically a year because that's like the cycle like i'm going to do some stuff for this short amount of time and then i'm going to spend the rest of the time campaigning about this problem that i solved that can't be solved in that amount of time, amount of time. right yeah. yeah so they come up with these band-aid solutions to get reelected and then the cycle just starts over again yep yep and i'm glad you said that about schools because if you think about it we start we start I guess dividing when we start putting behaviors like I mean children are children and you know some of them are gonna some act worse than others that doesn't necessarily mean they have ADHD or they're a bad child so they get labeled we start putting labels on them early and so that label continues to carry over and once you're labeled in society that's it like it's it's like you can't get from under that label and so even starting them as young children by saying oh well you're bad and you have ADHD and you know, just labeling them already, I think, sets them up for failure. It doesn't set them up for success because, like I said, that label continues. So then when you go to middle school or high school, they're like, oh, well, I know you. I've heard about you, you know, because you've been in trouble a lot or you've been in, in, in school suspension. It might just be that you are more talkative than others or, you know, everybody learns differently. Some people are visual learners. Some people are or learns that, you know, they can read it and then they understand it. And so everybody le learns and takes information differently. And I think that we have also put on society of how you, we're supposed to educate our children, how well they're supposed to absorb the information with standardized tests. And some people are smart, but they just aren't test worthy. Like they just can't take a test, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that they're not retaining the information. And so that's when you start putting label on children and say, oh, well, you know, you're not, in so many words, as smart as this student over here, and you're not catching on as quick as this student over here. And so that is labeling a child and that carries with them. And so that's a form of trauma, whether people understand it or not, that's a form of trauma. When you're label when you're labeling a child at a young age because of a behavior or because they're not catching on or because you feel like, you know, they're not up to the standardized of what America says a child should be. Sure. And, and I think that um, what more than one person has said to me um, that really, you know, stays with me is I just needed somebody to ask me, what happened to you? Not what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Why are you acting this way? I just needed somebody to come alongside me and say, are you okay? What happened to you? How can I help you? Like, are you hungry at home? Are you, you know, are there drugs in your house? Like all of these things that um, it sounds simple, but it's so complicated. So complicated. Right. Yeah. So. And, and that's, and I've heard that a lot. And I actually did a, um, a podcast with another podcaster who interviews serial killers. And so he said, a lot of them said that, you know, they just, they didn't have the family attention or you know, nobody stopped and asked them if they were okay. And so they just carried that for, you know, whatever they had been through in their childhood, just having somebody to be empathetic and be like, hey, are you okay? Do you need to talk? Um, and so that 
really made them, I guess, really bitter and angry inside. And so some of them did commit some heinous crimes. But like you said, just because they didn't get that, hey, are you okay? Or are you hungry? Or, you know, are, are your parents struggling to buy you school clothes or things of that nature um, to see what the, what the root of the problem is and not just you're acting like that because you're bad. Right. And again, I think that it's important for people to um, take accountability for harm that they've caused. So whether it's, you know, a, a small harm or a large harm, um, but people have to be in some semblance of wellness and capability to do so. So if you can't, obviously, if you are a person who is committing harm after harm after harm, which is a very very small like one percent of one percent of people you have to get to a place where you are even able to take accountability because at this point you're so far into you know the tornado that you're rationalizing right so i mean i think that uh you know sort of going back to why there are reasons to be hopeful because I hate to be like, oh, this is horrible because it, it can be so overwhelming, right? Like when, when we're in this work, like some days we wake up and we're like, I don't know if I can do this today. Like, I'm, like can I just go eat ice cream and, you know, whatever? Can I just <laughs> hide? Like, <laughs> Right, like, is there a, can I sing karaoke badly or what, you know? Um, the conversations are changing the voices of people who are most directly impacted are rising to the top. Mm -hmm. And I do get really encouraged when I go to colleges because young people are thinking about these things in a different way. They are. And um, I find that really encouraging. So I think that there is so much power in unity as opposed to being fearful of one another, even within our own movements, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I take a minute to have a conversation with somebody, I can see myself in them and they can see themselves in me. Mm, right. Even if we look very different or have had some different experiences, there are threads of commonality between all of us, which is our humanity. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that the more we are in proximity to as many different experiences as possible, the more we can create understanding. Yeah, and I, and I think having the ones that are directly impacted at the center leading, because I mean, years ago, they wasn't like they couldn't be, they didn't feel like they could right. be at the, at the forefront. And so having them there at the forefront and leading these things, and then just seeing that a lot of the younger generation is more on a social movement. So they are getting out and getting into this field and trying to make things better because I know I wasn't in the social movement at that age. <laughs> no, no, like I wasn't even thinking in those veins. I was like, you know, what am I going to do this weekend? Like, um, so it is really exciting to see young people really getting involved and, um, you know, whether it's criminal justice reform or it's voting rights or it's, um, you know, environmental justice. At the end of the day, all of these things are so interrelated and they're interrelated because of one thing. It's about collective care. Because if we're only out for ourselves and we're, you know, stuck on this individuality and if I did it, you can do it. And it's all about me or it's about profit. It's all those sort of individual, really harmful thoughts. Awesome. And we're not thinking about like collective care, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If we can't think about each other, we're afraid of each other. We can't think about collective care. Then we're really um, we're we're creating our own destruction. And we're going to continue to create our own destruction if we can't. I mean, because sometimes somebody just needs that boost. Like you, you can't. Everybody, like I said, everybody's different, and everybody goes through life differently. And some can, you know, pull up their bootstraps and get it done, and have the ambition and determination to do it. And some just need that help and that little bit of push. And once you push them then they're there. But, you know, just saying, oh, well, I did it and you can do it and I didn't get in any trouble and you shouldn't either is, is always going to harm better than help instead of saying, well, how can I help you get where I am? Or how can I help right. 
you know, the community get where it needs to be. That's, so that's really important that we start looking at it from how can we help one another and not how, you know, can we help each other or just myself only. Right. Well, and, and also understanding that everybody, every single person has power within themselves that just needs to be cultivated with the right opportunities. So how do we as a society create those opportunities for everyone? So it's not that somebody is more powerful than another or somebody, you know, if they're like, you know, a PhD and they've had all these opportunities and scholarships and doors open for them, they're somehow smarter, right? Mm -hmm. They're not, they're right? Not. That power and that um, humanity and things to give lives within everyone. They, we, we just have to be collectively part of creating systems to, to allow people to thrive. And that's, at the end of the day, that's what every single person wants. Just to the opportunity to live a life that is safe and thriving. Mm -hmm. And what that means to different people is different. Um, but to me, it means being able to connect with other people, to help other people, and to, you know, have my basic needs met. Met at the same time, yeah. Yeah. Well, Amber, this has been a great, great conversation. Um, I appreciate you so much. Please tell people how that they can get in contact with you. Also, you know, your podcast, because it's just as important as mine is. And so I want people, I want our listeners to go and check out Amber's podcast as well. Um, so just kind of leave some of that information for our audience. Sure. And so, I, I, again, I am so thankful that um, you had me on today. I really enjoy your work and your podcast. So um, I would love to have you come um, on our show as well. It would be um, really lovely. Um, people can reach out to me. You can find uh, me on Twitter. I spend, as you know, a lot of time on Twitter, probably more than I should. Um, it's um, Amber Speaks Up on Twitter. Um, the podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. It's called Amplified Voices. Um, you can also find it at amplifiedvoices.show. And then if you're interested in the work of Restorative you can find us online at restorativeactionalliance.org. All right. Well, thank you, Amber, so much. You are doing wonderful work to change just the community. And I thank you so much for all the hard work that you do. And I'm honored that I've, I'm in the share the same space with you. Um, and I would love to be on your podcast. And y'all, please go listen to Amplified Voices. It is so informative. Um, and it could change just the way you think about criminal justice in, in, in all. And so share her podcast, share mine. And thank y'all for listening to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.